0: Hey folks, it's Dylan here with the Wild Podcast. Welcome back. And I'm really excited. I just got off a great conversation with a, a colleague of mine and uh, an old friend, Bill Jex, And he's the wildlife biologist responsible for goats and sheep here in BC. He's the provincial specialist for those two magnificent species that uh, we get to hunt here in BC. And uh, I had him on the podcast because I've got support to continue on with our wildlife biologist project here with the wild podcast of having the biologists come on and talk about a species that they that they're that they study specifically and 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 Bill's on here talking about goats, which is great timing because I'm two weeks away from a goat hunt. Uh, Mickey and I and our friends Ashley and Jay are flying in to do a sort of a caribou goat hunt with probably goat being the priority. And uh, so I'm all fired up. I've got lots of, lots of questions to ask, and and Bill is just was really generous with his time and his knowledge and sharing. Uh, really a basic understanding of goat habitat, their biology, you know where they live, um, their behavior, how we manage them, and uh, just a great baseline conversation on goats. And if you like goats, you're going to learn a ton about them uh, on this podcast with Bill. So so stick around. Bill Jacks, uh, BC Provincial. Uh, goat and sheep specialist so that's awesome now as we get into this podcast i want to give you your eye hunter scouting tip of the podcast so i was just i was just using the app yesterday i was mickey and i were out uh beachcombing and we came across uh this beautiful patch of um of sea asparagus, and sea asparagus. If you're not familiar, it's a it's I think it's called pickle weed as well. Uh, it is a coastal plant, and it grows in the intertidal area. And uh, it's, it tastes actually a lot like like asparagus. You can pick it, and you can um, give it a quick bl- uh, boil it for a minute, and blanch it, and then you can fry it up with um, a bit of garlic, and I just almost serve it just like asparagus. It's a wonderful wild edible. It's a real treat, and or you can pickle it, do lots of cool stuff with it. So, um, anyways, it. it if you are going to look for it, please do use an iNaturalist app or something that's going to give you specific information around exactly what the plant is and then do your own check as to edibility and just for, um, before you dive into eating wild food at my recommendation. Um, but having said that, um, that the trick was, is that we were, you know, bordering a provincial park. Now, of course you cannot harvest anything in a provincial park. You can't take it away. And then I was curious as I was like, well, if it's outside the provincial park, then it's crown land and you can, you know, as long as you're harvesting within ethical measures and not, you know, leaving lots for the forest and just taking a little bit, it's a reasonable practice to uh, take a little bit of, of, of this, uh, sea asparagus. So, um, of course I had the iHunter app on my phone and I was able to pull up the app and I'm able to overlay the provincial park layer in my phone. And I can actually see where I am relative to the provincial park boundary. Um, which is a great tool. Now, this is a similar tool to the private land layer that's available. Um, There's a number of other layers that can tell you where you are in relation to uh, private land, uh, First Nation Reserve land, park land. And of course, this is just important to know exactly where you are, especially if you're harvesting and you want to make sure you're doing it legally, ethically, and responsibly. And being able to use the iHunter app for that purpose, um, that's certainly a game changer for me. So that's your iHunter scouting tip of the week, and we're going to get into this podcast now. Enjoy it. Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ires, and in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Bill Jacks, so great to see you. So great to be chatting with you. How are you doing? Where are you? Excellent. I'm sitting in
1: well, a little bit cloudy and overcast, Smithers. But you know what? It's we've had a week of rain, and there's not one person that I hear complaining about it. So it is a new era.
0: Yeah, really, I can see the sun shining on this on, on your on the yeah. Yeah, and on your big smile there. So, well, good to see you. So, so for I haven't ta- I don't think we've talked for ten years. Yeah. But I, well, maybe I've kind of bugged you once or twice here along the way, but we kind of go way back. We we're like, uh, I, I'm actually surprised you're still in government. Cause I remember like you, you were pretty, like, when I first came into government, you're, we were all working together in the same shop. And, uh, and I thought that was the coolest part about the, the merger we had at the time. Cause we got to work with a wildlife biologist. So, and as a fanatic hunter, I was like, wow, I get access to all these guys that really know their stuff and about wildlife. So I, uh, yeah, it was great uh, getting to know you back in the early days of Lower Mainland. And uh, what's your job now? What do, do you do and where where did you go? So last time we hung out, we were you were working in the Lower Mainland and and uh, you had a portfolio of biology work there. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your career journey and we'll start with that. Sure, sure. Well, yeah,
1: we started together in Lower Mainland region, right? Like working in the Surrey office, you were there and then in North Van and Squamish and you were all over the place. But um, I was pretty much in Surrey for the for the most part. Then I moved into the forestry habitat program based out of Chilliwack and Rosedale. And I worked
0: there for, so what were some, what were some of your big files down the lower mainland?
1: Predominantly. Um, well, when I first started there in 96, it was a lot of uh, salmon habitat restoration work. Um, but I'd always, you know, had the goal of getting into wildlife. So kind of worked into the forestry habitat, which was a lot more wildlife uh, oriented at that point. and, stayed there for a decade which was excellent a lot of mountain goat work uh in the lower mainland and, and working with other folks like daryl reynolds who's still down there on the on the coast working away and um you know steve gordon and steve rachetta and greg george and the others um jim roberts so uh i moved to smithers in 2007 and took a wildlife biologist based position at that point and then kind of started taking on more mountain goat and wild sheep files. So originally, you know, there's a group of four of us. There was a couple retirements, and there was two of us kind of managing 18 big game species in one region. So you tend to sort of carve off pieces and work on them and then kind of come back together. And uh, I took the mountain ungulate files, the sheep and goat stuff, and really got excited about that um, it was something that had always interested me, but I, and you know, little rainland we had mountain goats, but we didn't have wild sheep per se in region two. So it was great to be able to start to get involved with more wild sheep work. And that progressed into me being the first provincial wild sheep and mountain goat specialist in BC. We were able to generate enough momentum and create enough of a business case to say that, hey, there's a need here um, for some dedicated resourcing. So it it worked out quite well.
0: Cool. Maybe maybe you could tell me a little bit about what, what does that mean when you say dedicated resourcing and a need and, and you know, what does that mean? What are those needs? Well, traditionally, you, you know,
1: harvest was really managed around freezer species, you know, deer, elk, moose, things that people hunt and eat. Um, you know, good good linkage like segue species. to your, use to your yeah, you know, that <laughs> the other species like, you know, caribou and sheep and uh, goats, there's still stuff that people hunt and consume, but it, they're not classified as a freezer species per se, right? So um, they often didn't get a lion's share of, you know, the inventory or the attention. They, a lot of the files were kind of managed off the sides of people's desks. And, you know, as interest and diversification in the hunting community sort of emerged over the last decade, um, and especially the new generation of hunters, they, I, I kind of refer to them more as mountain athletes because they are so much more fit <laughs> than I have ever been as a mountain ungulate hunter. And um, so, yeah, these mountain athletes it became a thing for people so um yeah it, it that's sort of aligned with creation of the bc mountain goat society um rocky mountain goat alliance the so, uh, Wild sheep society bc of course has a long history but they became a lot more active in the last decade so it was kind of a coalescing of all this momentum um and government realized that other jurisdictions had sort of this same delivery model where they had a species lead for sheep and mountain goats and um, thought, yeah, this is probably what we need to do here in BC. You know, we we all face climate change. We all face changing habitat conditions um, and sheep and goats are that way as well. So we have the only stone sheep on the planet. Um, we have well over half the world's population of mountain goats and the current world record again for mountain goat harvested, um, in the North. And yeah, it's, it, it was a need. So it's worked out.
0: That's really cool. And I, and that's some interesting, interesting fodder for conversation right off the bat about just the changes that you've seen in, in the time you've managed, um, the, particularly up North that those mountain species and, And the different, because I, 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 as a, as a hunter educator and, you know, I very much came into Eat Wild with that, you know, really supporting people to hunt for their freezer, targeting the, the meat species, um, and you know, whitetail does would be one where people are like, where do I start? Well, whitetail doe is a great place to start, you know, low, low barrier hunt, you'll see deer, you'll get opportunities. You'll probably screw up a few, but eventually if you keep at it, you might get one and you'll learn a ton. And then, you know, mule deer as well and even re- more recently I've been talking more about bear hunting and black bear hunting because of the accessibility of of the hunt right. um as much as it's been a long process for me to kind of get to where I'm comfortable hunting black bears but I've always been a mountain hunter as well like I've always enjoyed the the challenge and of being in the mountains and but I've never really like talked much about it in the well program cuz uh, cuz there are so many barriers with it but the the truth is there's a ton of need for support and guidance cuz I think as much as people are targeting those meat species, there's so much out there driving folks to experience these, you know, mountain species. And what do you think that some of the drivers are from, from your perspective? Have you, do you guys have any stats on increased participation on these types of hunts? Is it, have you seen the numbers jump up? Have you seen the harvest rates go up?
1: Yeah. You know, the province um, along with the wildlife federation realized in the early two thousands that we were, on a declining trend for hunter recruitment, and there were some active efforts made to try and recruit uh, new hunters and people that are were new to the country that came from hunting cultures, but you know they're new to Canada, they're new to BC, and they wanted to get back into that part of of what made them uh, culturally and traditionally as a as a person back in their home country. So. Um, That was recognized as a need. There was a lot of engagement effort put into that. And it really was successful. We, we turned that corner. We, we sell, geez, like I'd hate to quote the wrong number, but in terms of sheep and goats, um, we've certainly increased in the last decade about a thousand species tags per year being sold. So, you know, we've, we've, yeah, we've almost doubled, um, The sheep hunters and we've almost doubled the mountain goat participation. I think kind of as you touched on, there's people want to get connected with that type of environment. There's, um, they live in a special place, right? It's just, it's so different to to hunt something or, you know, even just pursue something, um, with a camera or what have you up on top of a mountain. It's so different than. Um, a lower valley animal and people are more fit they better lifestyles they know how um, to manage their, their their work-life balances better than we ever did um, and they're just they're, they can do it um, and and so I think that has created so they have a physical ability there's a desire to connect and I think that that's sort of all coalesced there
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think just the accessibility has never been better in terms of the gear that folks can buy, and 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 then ultimately just just so much media out there that sort of saying, hey, you know, you can do this, come do it, get fit. Here's the gear, you know, check out this experience, and you see that, and you get kind of inspired, and and um, yeah, I I had some, you know, we've had some really, I've had some really good conversations. I got a, a couple of buddies that are into that winter goat hunt, and um just talking through that, like, wow, well, like, well, it's cool. Like, like if you're going to put out a movie about that, like how much time do you spend talking about avalanche safety and hypothermia and like how much responsibility does that content creator have to really show the perils of, of the adventure and, and having some really like challenging and interesting conversations on that topic, but maybe, maybe for another day, we got, I got, I got a long list of stuff that I want to talk sure. to you about. So, um, but I should probably get to it because I've only got so much time. So, so, Bill, I'm really pleased to have you on here. Um, it, it, this is sort of a part of a, a series that I started a couple of years ago, where I, I, I wanted permission to talk to all the wildlife biologists in the province to talk, to talk specifically about um, largely the freezer species, and a little bit about you know so folks can get a better understanding of the animal, where they live, and then I really wanted to get into sort of how we manage them in terms of the the wildlife management project cycle, you could call it, or the cycle of how do we go from counting wildlife to setting regulations and then enforcing regulations. So, and then what, how are those regulations supposed to work in order to manage the animal? So I'm really excited to be talking to you for uh, first out of the gate here, um, in 2023, picking up on this project, um, because I'm doing a, a, like a caribou goat hunt in sheep country this year. So we got some interesting I'm going with my, my wife, Mickey and our, and our good friends, uh, Ashley and Jason so those two couples were flying in out of D's uh and uh, we're gonna yeah hopefully yeah playing for good weather and uh, and hopefully find some animals but I think the most realistic expectation of this trip is to try and ha- harvest a goat and that's what Mickey is sort of targeting in her in her mind is she'd like to go after a goat and I think that's probably the most reasonable expectation of a of this type of hunt so I'm excited for that so I'm excited to talk to you about Goats. I've never actually hunted goats before, and not, and haven't had a strong um, uh, desire to do so. Uh, but I, I am I'm building that desire, and I'm really excited that Mickey's into it because uh, it'll be fun. Yeah. So as long as we get some weather, I hope we have a good time. So I got a pile of questions for you, and hopefully other people who are thinking about goat hunting can can use this information to to make, to make decisions around whether it's right for them and how to go about doing it ethically, sustainably, and ultimately legally. So are you up for that, Absolutely. Bill? Right on. Okay, so being the provincial specialist for for goats, um, all I really want to do is talk to you about sheep. But don't get me wrong, but I, get a, I, I got the approval to talk to you about goats, so we'll stick to the plan. Well, we'll
1: do sheep another day.
0: Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope so. I'd love to. I'd love to, Bill, because uh, there's a lot of information there and that I'd love to talk to you about. But we'll we'll do goats, and that's what we're doing. So, okay. So, can you describe to me what the preferred habitat is for for a goat? In British Columbia, and if there's significant differences, obviously throughout BC, we could throw that in there.
1: Yeah, there is, so there is right, um, and we so much so that we kind of classify goats in in two ways. We classify them as behaviorally as coastal or wet zone wet belt animals, or interior and dry belt type individuals. And the reason for that distinction um, is pretty much governed by snow. By winter, that drives their behaviors. Um, and as we know on the coast, it's that wet, heavy, damp snow. You get the same sort of thing in that wet belt in the interior in region four and eight, um, where that band of, of heavy, heavy wet snow hits the ground. And then as you move east from both of those environments, so you're heading east from the coast and east from that interior wet belt or further north the snow conditions change they become a lot drier you get into those powder types and that changes goat behavior so if you're looking at a coastal environment goats are more apt um, in winter to use forested environments they want that snow shedding capability um, that that the canopy offers them in the interior though they're going to make more use of that windswept alpine environment in the winter so um, and that's because the wind blows that snow away. It's, it's easier to move. So two things that drive mountain goats really is snow and terrain. And so that's the second part of the answer to your question. Um, escape terrain is a, is a huge driver on where goats will be kind of year round. Um, you know, nannies will kid on escape terrain. And that same escape terrain will kind of be the anchor for where they spend the rest of their year. Billies, they move about more. And, and especially if you're a young billy, you're going to look for opportunities during the rut. Um, and you're going to move a little wider uh, in terms of geography. But still, it's anchored in that escape terrain. Um you know, I'm probably the only person in BC that's been crazy enough to fully articulate a mountain goat skeleton and have it on their front porch. But when you do that and you break apart that individual and you look at the way their feet are built in terms of their skeletal structure, they have these really cool little stabilizer bones. And they're called seismoid bones. And they sit down. You know, if we think of your hand and your finger joints, those sections in your fingers, those are the flanges. Um, bones and then in your knuckle joints um, mountain goats towards the end of where your finger would be they have these sesamoid bones and those act as lateral stabilizers so their entire physiology has evolved around escape terrain so number one thing when you're looking for goats is Try to look for escape terrain for sure. That's gonna drive where they are. Okay, so maybe you could break down what
0: what does escape terrain look uh, like for a goat?
1: It's ugly. <laughs> it's ugly <laughs> if you you know, yeah, I mean I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit there having fun. But um, you know, we ha- it can be sheer walls, it can be mountain um, bluff complexes, it can be hoodoos, it can be canyons. Anywhere where you have that that underlying rock structure that's steep and rugged um, and makes it a bad place for critters like wolves and um, grizzly bears or black bears to get up on and chase you down. Goats are not sprinters or athletes, right? In terms of running game, they're climbers. So they uh, they want that terrain where they don't have to run too far, uh, but they can evade those um, Predators simply by getting onto that steep ground.
0: How far away is there? Like I, I've heard somewhere that like a, a sheep won't be any more than sixty meters from a piece of escape terrain uh, at any one time when it's grazing or hanging out. Um, is there a rule of thumb for for goats as to how close they hold that escape? terrain? Yeah, I, you know, hundred meters
1: or so is sort of pushing it for them. Um, it, it it's dependent on their perception of predation risk. So in areas where predator numbers are lower, um, you know, goats will be a little bit more risk tolerant. They'll venture a little bit further away from that escape train. In areas where, say, there's a high grizzly bear or wolverine population, they maybe will stay closer to that escape train. But we're not talking, you know, several hundreds of meters generally. We're talking only 100 meters or so from that from that escape terrain on most days. There's exceptions seasonally, especially so, um, the drive for Uh, minerals can take them further away from those escape terrain areas, sometimes kilometers. So they accept huge risk when they leave those safety of those escape terrains to go after those mineral sources.
0: Maybe you can tell me a little bit about how they access minerals.
1: Yeah it's so the mouth, there's a lot of like natural um especially in the interior mineral licks there's wet licks and dry licks they tend to be um have salt or calcium based deposits and they simply go and eat dirt um they you know when you if you walk around those areas you'll see that the pellets that they leave behind kind of look like little solid balls of concrete because they ingest so much dirt Mountain goats, you know, nannies really need that um, salt and that that mineral uptake in about mid-June. And the reason for that, the kids have been nursing since the end of May and they are in a bit of a deficiency in terms of nutrition, but they've also switched to some new green growth and and that requires a bit of a different um, internal gut microchemistry, so they need those minerals as well. Billies tend to um, attend those mineral licks later in the summer, so July sort of timing, right? Um, yeah, that's when you'll find that's when you'll find those there on the coast. Licks are rare, much more rare than in the interior. Um, I remember one time flying in the Big Silver area and i saw this avalanche shoot and there were a couple goats out on it and there is this huge um, hole in this granite face and what we end up with on the coast sometimes is you'll get these basalt columns or these calcium-based columns of mineral that will form inside these big granite slopes and goats will target on those uh, so I went back and I hiked up to that, and it was really incredible to see that goats had actually licked into solid rock the depth of a couple of feet. Um, and, and you think how many millennia of you know generations attending that site to do that to actually dissolve and lick away hard rock is incredible. So it is a driver for them
0: for sure it's wild when you've we done a lot of river trips in the last number of years, like paddling down rivers. And, um, it, you know, there's these spots right along the river where I guess there's some emergence of minerals and, and it's just, you go, it's like, it's so interesting. Cause you go hang out down and you see tracks from every species and all the predators and all the ungulates and it's just, and you find balls of hair and goat hair and sheep hair and moose hides and moose sheds and, Yeah, it's just bones of all kinds of animals laying there from the wolf. When the wolves got lucky, like it's such a cool little spot to just hang out. Probably a good idea just to sit there for a few days and see what happens. It's amazing, uh, eh? How that draw,
1: yeah, and you're able to see that. I saw um, a nanny with a newborn kid one time right on the shore of Harrison Lake. um, You know, kilometers from the nearest escape train. But she was feeding on aquatic vegetation that had washed up. So, you know, there's your. She probably didn't have a soil-based mineral lick in her home range, and she had learned from, you know, her mother and the mother before that you can go to the lake and find these, these um, drifted uh, aquatic vegetation, and that can uplift your your mineral content. So. They get creative
0: in the types of minerals they find, but it's it's amazing how they find them. That's cool. Well, so one of the things I was wondering about, like when you watch Observed goats on the mountains, like they they do t- typically just live on these rock shelves, like these little green patches amongst the cliff bands, and they live there and, they, and they're feeding there kind of constantly in one little spot. It always kind of amazes me that, and, and if they don't go very far from these spots, what, what is it? What are they primarily eating? And how can it be they can eat so much in the same spot they sleep and everything else? Well, you know, they, yeah, so seasonally, they,
1: in the spring, um, shrubs, emerging shrubs, those buds, when they start to swell, they're really high in vitamins. So they'll target shrubs in the spring and they'll nip those buds off. Um, Certainly the new emerging leaves, again, high in vitamins, especially vitamin C. um, Douglas fir, those new emergent uh, little Fronds that form, those are high in vitamin C as well. So they'll nip all those off. Uh, then they, they use grass and sedges quite a bit. Um, in, as they transition to winter, you know, winter's not a, a, a time of plenty for mountain goats. They, they're <laughs> sort of on a, on a daily diminishing return. So they hope they, they've stored yeah. up enough fat by eating all the good stuff through summer And in winter, yeah, they can they can be browsing on conifers, um, lichen that's come out of the trees or that's terrestrial on the ground. And, um, yeah, some of it even just sort of scraping it off of rocks. Um, Pretty incredible what they, they basically can ingest and digest.
0: The early adopters of the intermittent fasting, uh, f- fat <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> seasonal intermittent fasting. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, okay, you kind of covered up a couple of questions there. So, the summer they're eating all that lush stuff that's popping, and then in the winter they're just kind of starving and eating lichen if they can find it and whatever else. Um, overall, how is the how is the population of goats doing in BC, and do we do we have enough information to really know? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, um, we don't have enough information to really know. Uh, As I said, traditionally, the investments from government have really gone into those freezer species. It's been the highest demand. Those are the species that are the most accessible. They're front country species, right? Moose, deer, elk, that sort of stuff. Um, And and they hold a high importance to the larger group of consumptive users. So that's where our investments have gone. Um, And. You know, so we have traditionally felt that we had, you know, somewhere between 30 and 65,000 goats in BC. But I mean, that's a crazy range, right? You're doubling your lowest estimate to get to what your upper estimate might be. That gives you an idea of sort of the lack of confidence that we had, uh, in our data set. It's got a lot better in recent years and with groups like, um, you know, changing investments. So in government, the way that government's restructured together for wildlife, for example, that program has brought new funding that's available to mountain goats and wild sheep biologists that traditionally probably would have been deflected to some of those more conventional freezer species. So that's a good thing. You've got um, groups like Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance that offer funding, um, mostly small dollar seed funding to leverage larger envelopes of dollars, but uh, everything from research to inventory work. Um, huge supporters of citizen science. And so from a government perspective, that's science that comes at very little cost to us. Yeah. So if, if it's collected well, it can be great, a great tool. And... Um, and then Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, right? Another another BC product that where that's supported by predominantly licensed purchasers. That's where the surcharge come from. But there's a lot of public donations, um, corporate donations as well that help them finance their projects. And while they don't specifically um fund inventory projects, they will fund a project that's broader in scope that includes inventory. And so um you know some of the work that we've done on population closure and movement seasonal movements of mountain goats um microbiome you know, gut microbiomes that sort of stuff uh that's all been funded through habitat conservation trust foundation investments and those have included inventory work so we are getting better information than we've had in the past um and more more regular information um, now we see a project um sort of priority mountain goat areas maybe getting surveyed every seven years or 10 years as opposed to once every 20 years so uh, yeah that's a better a better outcome for mountain goats for sure
0: so how do you survey mountain goats how do you count yeah
1: well there you go it's um traditionally we use uh what's called a total count survey so bc um Back in the 90s, established a science advisory panel, um, and they developed a set of provincial standards. So we use those provincial standards to guide our inventory work for all our wildlife species. And they're slightly different depending on the species that you're inventorying. So for mountain goat and wild sheep, we use a total count, which basically you identify a mountain block complex, you fly that at regular contours and essentially you corkscrew around the mountain until you reach the top. Uh, you count the animals that you see, um, so you have a total minimum count. You know the ones that you saw were there. Um, so you're confident in your in your lowest estimate. And then you can add what's known as a sightability correction factor to that. So you know, if you're doing a survey work in winter and you see 10 sets of fresh mountain goat tracks, but you only count one individual, you have a pretty good idea. You probably missed other individuals. And so that's kind of what the sightability correction factor is meant to do. It's meant to give you a a more accurate depiction of animals that were in that area that you didn't necessarily see. So that's, those are the tools we have traditionally used we've tried other tools like stratified random block surveys that's traditionally used for moose Um, it it hasn't worked very well for us in bc or other jurisdictions either Uh, alaska has tried something called distance sampling and that's basically where you fly a transect and you identify you have observers that look out the left and right and they identify observations That hasn't worked well for us with respect to sheep or goats. Our terrain is slightly different. Well, it's quite different than that Alaska Brooks Range area. So where they've had success in using it, we haven't had success in in using that. So we've shied away from those two types of surveys that other jurisdictions or we use for other species. Um, An emerging part of what we do, though, is... is, um, Coming through citizen science, and we've had a couple of projects now on the south coast where um, region regional biologists were able to get money to do a helicopter survey following um, the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance leading a citizen science project where a number of individuals go out to viewpoints and they count the number of goats they see in a certain period. Uh, and compared those notes and they've come back remarkably close so um, the citizen science efforts if you can get people into the area you want to survey is starting to prove out as as a tool too and we might see that used a little bit more commonly going forward
0: yeah there's a every, every once in a while there's a well every year there's a call out for folks to go join the backcountry hunters and anglers and the wild sheep society to go and observe sheep on the Fraser, I think it's yeah. the Fraser river corridor. And, and um, yeah, and it's a great, great community event and people get to come out and try out all their fancy optics and hang out with other hunters. And it's just a cool, cool thing to do. And, um, and also you're, it's a huge contribution to getting a better understanding of that population. So I imagine extending that same idea throughout, uh, BC for goats. And they're so fun to watch too. It's like, I, I spent a week, um, Uh, A friend of mine is, uh, Shimshan and, um, he was up, uh, participating in a traditional goat hunt in his, in his territory, GitGat territory. And, um, and I was along driving the boat for him and, uh, hanging out and, uh, yeah. So we spent a lot of time watching, watching goats down on the, just from, from the water, like from the ocean, looking up the hill and just watching them hang out on the bluffs and hoping they show up at a spot that he could maybe get to it without, you know. Killing himself, or 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 uh, or or at least somewhere where the goat could be standing. That if it, if you he, if you he, if he shot at it, it would have a chance of recovering it. Which proved out to be very difficult, and it'll be it'll be all covered in another podcast at some point. But um, but yeah, just uh, yeah, just it's a it's a kind of neat just how much fun they are to watch, and how uh, actually one of the things I was sort of just puzzling out in my head we're talking about like uh, there's obviously some species that you, you can't fly around and see. Because they're in cover, but when you're flying goats, like what is the percentage of goats being exposed? It seem it would seem quite high to me in most places that you probably they, they seem to be quite visible. But but is there is that just an assumption? Is there is there just? I know that I made that assumption about mule deer for for so long that oh the mule deer out in the open in the alpine, and I learned like years later that there's ten times as many deer. In the trees, right. <laughs> there's just a couple that are standing out in the open that draw your attention that are fun to hunt. But the ones, if you want to get, if you want to get a mule there every year, you should be hunting the timber. But uh, it, what's the case with with uh, goats in terms of their preference to be in open areas versus? Interior? Well, it
1: it boils down to those two behavioral types: the coastal versus interior, and then timing of your survey. So, um, if you're doing an interior mountain goat survey in September. You know, you've got white critters in alpine environments. Your sightability is going to be really high. Um, similarly, if you're on the coast in winter, because tracks tip you off to the existence of an individual in that area, your sightability can be really high. In the summer, doing work on the coast is a lot more problematic. You don't have those, um, highlights, those things that grab your attention. Oh, there's tracks in this area. I've got to really, you know, there should be a goat here and then you seek to find it sort of thing. So timing, constraints, and just your geography, whether you're interior or or coastal, um, they influence your ability
0: to see goats for sure. Yeah, for sure. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, we, we um, Spencer has a bunch of, he's been studying this goat population uh, with his nation for, for years as part of his doctorate. Uh, thesis, and uh, um, he's uh, got a bunch of cameras out, so he's been observing the the behavior and whatnot. But as we were checking the cameras, we got to climb up the the hill uh, where where these goats winter, and it was just awesome. These like super steep trails, and there's just like crazy goat beds underneath rock faces in this old growth forest. It was just spectacular, like the the country that they're living in. But it's definitely that escape train. Like every bed has like four escape routes off of every bed and uh and super steep and just one way up and you know one giant one big jump <laughs> <Yeah>. down <laughs> but yeah just cool it's so cool i was i was i was right into it i I, I thought it was really cool getting to know these animals a bit well kind of fire and those
1: beds hunting. they can have you know the typical of ungulates they bed down then when they get up they defecate usually not too yeah. far from where their bed is sometimes there's a couple steps sometimes if you're a mountain goat and it's You know, you don't have to worry about things sort of collecting where you bed down because you've got a big drop off the side. Um, You can, and you know, you just let her go there. But they end up with these (laughs) huge beds of pellets that can be, yeah, quite thick. Like we're talking in some of those cave environments, they can be a couple feet thick. And you just, again, you think of how long that feature has been used um, to collect that amount of pellets. Uh, you know yeah it, it's pretty incredible
0: yeah it's really cool to think that and it just makes these places so special and so important and the more we know about it I mean that's the you look at this incredible like you know I would have looked at this hillside and go yeah there's some nice timber on in there it'll be gone in no time but knowing the values that are there um, that are that that timber has to stay there like that timber has to stay there to protect those values and I think we're we're, we're and it's good to have like people like Spencer and and, and the citizens out there doing the science because we're knowing, we're going to know better and hopefully there'll be stronger advocates for keeping that timber there so the goats have somewhere to go now that we understand it a bit better. Yeah. Well, and, so, and on that, I think what um, we're
1: learning is those observations that you just relayed about we have mountain goats in this area using this forested um, mountain bluff complex. Well, two mountains over, you can have identical terrain and not have goats on it. So, you know, tying in what you just said and the observations of those local community members and the people that are researching that, those are really important pieces of information because, you know, a resource extraction company comes along and they want to um, develop an area um, and there's benefits to resource development. I'm I'm not saying there should be no resource development. You know, knowing that the goats are in one area and using that, and yet this other area doesn't have mountain goats on it. Well, there's a huge, um, uh, what value, uh, valuable piece of knowledge, right? So, so yeah, it's them, them being able to, and when I say them, I mean anybody who's out there, um, monitoring or aware where mountain goats are. Anybody who can contribute that information certainly can influence those decisions, right? Uh, We created the the Mountain Goat and Wild Sheep Natal app. And originally, we created that tool. So it's a smartphone-based app. You can also do it on your um, computer. Originally, we created that because we were noticing in some areas the timing of when nannies were having kids was getting earlier in the year. And we wanted to try to understand that better. They were shifting outside what we considered or what, you know, the books say is our normal, it's called a parturition window. It's basically when they have their kids. Um, So we created this tool and we asked the public to share their observations of where they saw ewes and lambs and nannies and kids. That was really the main purpose of that. But it's grown beyond that. People are contributing more observations. So now we know that we have, you know, billies that are using one hillside. And across the valley, there's nannies and kids using a different hillside. And, um, you know, so those sorts of pieces of information, anybody can contribute. You download the app. Um, If you go to the ministry's website, there's links there. Just Google it. But that information is becoming increasingly valuable to regional biologists um, in identifying some of those threats and being able to inform where some of that resource development, you know, maybe can occur with reduced risk and maybe shouldn't occur because of the risk.
0: That's fascinating. That's, that's, that's awesome to know. I'm glad that's progressing for sure. And I'll include the show uh, in the show notes, uh, a link to that, that, um, that app. I know that, um, uh, Conrad Thiessen put me on to a moose app, uh, just a moose moose sighting app and trying to get that out there. And, and, um, I've been if you see a moose cross the road, you just plug it into the app and it's just a little bit more information that the, the biologists responsible for that can look at and build into their decision-making. So pretty cool that this, that these tools are there and, and it's cool that we start using them. And I think that there's an appetite within the hunting community to do everything we can to support any type of wildlife management, um, uh work that's being done and and um, yeah no it's exciting okay so thinking a little bit about what I'd like to hit you up on here is what what look how do we manage the population what what tools do we use to manage hunting pressure on the population
1: well I mean we generally you know in an ideal situation we would go out we would have an inventory we'd have a rough population estimate for an area and that might be a at the herd level or subpopulation or metapopulation scale. So herd level being the immediate family unit um, for mountain goats. And subpopulation would be sort of where the the local community comes together. So all it would be several family groups that would share area. Typically, you can define that through rut range. So when you know Individuals are traveling from these hillsides to that hillside during the rut, or um, where nannies and kids are coming together uh, to form nursery herds. Um, that's you, you know they're they're getting together with their their cousins and their third cousins and all that sort of stuff sort of thing. So we can divide that we can identify that subpopulation, and then a series of subpopulations will. Genetically, because they share um, those young billies or maybe mature billies are moving from one subpopulation to another, um, we can identify a metapopulation, that larger population. Um, So that's, in an ideal world, we'll have those three scales of information. Hmm. Um, We've had our wildlife manage, anybody that hunts in BC knows, we have our management units. you know, the region two, there'd be two, two to two, seven or whatever. And it, you know, region six is, you know, six, one to six, 20 something. Um, so people will be familiar with that. Those management units is what we plug our population boundaries into and try to identify, mm-hmm. okay, okay yeah. in this management unit, we can sustain, um, this type of harvest pressure and in another area well maybe the population's not so big or maybe it's quite big well okay so then we can enjoy a bit of a more liberal opportunity there and you see that reflected in whether it's a general open season area or a limited entry hunt area or maybe an archery only zone we have a, that in in the north as well and um so that mm. is kind of how we manage the uh, the hook and bullet part of our uh, populations.
0: We also have two. So with the general open season. Right. No, okay. go ahead. Before we go down that road, let's, let's talk a little bit about limited entry versus general open season. I, so I live in Region Two, and it's a, and for the most part, we're like, I'm I'm in around on the on the Sunshine Coast now, and there's a general open season for goats here on the coast, and. I think a couple of reasons why it's a general open season, because when I look up to where those goats are, it's like, I, I don't think I can get there. Like yeah. I think it's self-limiting in the sense that, that there's probably not that many people who are capable of going up there. And even if they are capable, the reality of them even, you know, somehow connecting on a goat is quite right. low. Um, and then, so in terms of the the factors that play into whether, how much does hunting pressure play into the, whether it goes LEH versus General open season. It's a large uh,
1: aspect of that. So, accessibility, like you said, that sort of landscape permeability, people being able to access where goats are. Um, but the second consideration uh, is in the context of the meta population and subpopulation scales. So, in the north, in Skeena region, for example, if you look at MU69 and you look at the LEH zones for mountain goats, uh, it's it's a long alphabet of of LEH zones, mm-hmm. and they're all connected. They're all quite small, but the reason for that is to distribute that harvest pressure. Uh, you know, we don't want every hunter accessing using the same forestry road or the same hiking trail and harvesting goats from the first population of goats that come from. It wouldn't take very long to no longer have goats in that area. So, the second con- secondary consideration apart from what you identified um, there about accessibility really is around distributing that harvest in the population just to make sure that we don't over harvest a smaller component of that subpopulation
0: Cool so when um, is there now these are compulsory inspected uh, I, I, sorry that's actually a good thing what, what's compulsory inspected and why is it important for goat hunting
1: so uh, sheep and goats are both, uh, well, and other species as well, but mountain goats, uh, there's a requirement if you're successful at harvesting a mountain goat, um, you have to have it inspected. And we that is sometimes done through ministry staff and some portions of the province contractors have been hired just to create more opportunity in terms of time and geography. So people aren't having to drive seven hours to get a, a compulsory inspection done. Um, and that requires... Uh, In the synopsis, you'll see the parts that are required for mountain goats as proof of sex and the horns. And it really is important for biologists because it helps us understand the age at which mountain goats are getting harvested in different areas. The proportion of males and females um, that are getting harvested in different areas. And in the context of non-resident hunters, so guide outfitter clients. Um, where those distributions are happening as well uh, because uh, resident hunters that are in an LEH zone or a general open season area for mountain goats, it, it can make a difference whether they harvest a goat on one side of the mountain versus the other because it might move them from one management unit into another management unit or it could move them from gone guide outfitter territory to another one First Nations territory to another. So the compulsory inspection, a key part of that, apart from us being able to sample the individual and really understand that individual that was harvested, is also to identify the location where that animal was taken. And again, that ties back into those different scales of population management, right? Harvest at the herd level versus subpopulation versus metapopulation level critical for goats because they are a it's low a, reproductive um, species.
0: It's a really cool experience too, because they, I got a sheep a couple years ago and, and got, it went to the compulsory inspection on the way down and we ended up getting an opportunity to spend time with the, with the, the professional that does the inspection as well as the wildlife biologist popped in to hang out with us and just, Like what a cool experience just to get the context of, you know, a number of other sheep that had been through and, and, and just the, what, you know, the relationship between this sheep and the other, you know, the the sheep of the area, it was just really cool. And then just such an opportunity to learn a bunch. So that in itself was a real highlight of our hunt was doing that inspection and getting to do it nearby where we had had the harvest. So that was awesome. Well, and that's a huge part of, you know, people don't think of that as citizen science,
1: but it is. So, you know, Hunter X has gone out. They've harvested an animal from an area. They brought that back. They've got a suite of data that they're providing government through the compulsory inspection effort. But you'll notice with the, with your ram that you would have had, that you would have had inspected, but also with mountain goats, we measure the horn length. And when we measure those horns, we're measuring the interannuli or the annual growth. Um, that's what we use. It helps us age the animal. But it also gives us indications of the way that animal grows. So nutritional quality of the habitat that exists. Uh, But more recently, we've been able to link horn growth with the age at first parturition of nannies. So meaning when they have their first kid. Um, and that's reflected. You can pick that up in the horn length measurements. So, you know, these, these, Things that, you know, somebody might bring in and go, oh, yeah, well, buddy measured my horns. Um, there's so much more valuable pieces of information that we're able to bring into the research. And so through those horn measurements, um, there's been a paper published recently that's identified um, that on the coast, we're seeing a higher proportion of three-year-old nannies um, giving birth. And in the interior, a higher proportion of five-year-old nannies having their first kid. Um, there's implications associated with both of those shifts in age from kind of that four-year-old, uh, what was traditionally a four-year-old um, timing. Um, the younger you are when you have your first kid, probably you're not going to have a kid the next year and maybe not the year after because there are, physiological nutritional demands Mm. on the body that can have population effects and and relate to. um,
0: So the older goats will be more likely to
1: produce year after year? Potentially, but they're, they, they're delayed in getting there. Right. So you, when you model your population, Mm. when the biologist is thinking, okay, I I do an inventory and I take a look at my harvest contribute and I'm, and here's what I'm seeing in terms of my nanny harvest and the age of my nannies. Well, if you're in the interior where you have a shift towards five year olds being the ones that are starting to be your reproductive engine that are, that are initiating your reproduction in your population, but you've got your nannies being harvested when they're four, they never have a chance to reproduce. So there's, mm, there's a yeah. lot of information that comes from that compulsory inspection. Hunters, um, it's just so such a valuable
0: piece of information for us. Cool. Well, I think we got to get to harvesting nannies versus billies here in a second. But I'm just curious, how 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 old is uh can a nanny become? Like, how, what what's in what's the expected life expectancy? If it just if we were to grow old and somewhat die of natural causes. Well,
1: certainly high teens. Um, in zoo environments, they live into their twenties. So um but in the wild it's rare you, you know i there's and and they don't you know there's they get to a point it's called senescence right where you no longer um are part of the act the active reproductive cycle of the population you're, i mean we call it menopause in humans but it's the same sort of thing right you're just um your role in the population is no longer part of the reproductive engine you you have different roles that you play so we see that happen in wildlife, and we see um, some of those nannies getting quite old, even though they're still not reproducing um, because they don't really have the the nutritional fitness to do that. Um, but yeah it, it's it's pretty cool. They can get pretty old
0: so but are still knowledge keepers probably' still sharing the information exactly like would be so interesting. yeah. Huh? How about billies? is there is there no notable difference between how old well they? can Yeah,
1: do? I mean, they 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 are a little bit more um, what prone to the more aggressive conflict, right? so and and they do yeah. more travel, certainly those billies that were recruiting into the rut forum, those um, you know those, those late teen, I don't it's maybe not a way to describe it, but anyways, the five and six year old billies that are, really starting to assert themselves and and want to become the billy in that area that's responsible for the, the breeding, um, they move further. They expose themselves more to more accidental death, to predation, to that sort of stuff. So um, we do see that group kind of getting hit a little bit by those natural sort of um, losses. But billies can can be effective through their 12 or 14 years old. Um, 14 starting to get a little bit old for Billy in BC, but still they, I'm sure they're there and I've seen some pretty old horns that lead me to think that they were 14, but um, you know, they get pretty, if if you've seen goat horns on an old goat, those annuli are really close together um, and, and it
0: can be pretty tough. I think I had goat sausage from a 16 year old goat this year. So, and they're pretty good. I was surprised. There you (laughs) go. I don't know if you can do much else with it, but, uh, but no, it was, it was was amazing. I was surprised. And I mean, also surprised that it was a 16 year old animal that somehow survived out there until it, yeah, Yeah. got, got someone, yeah, a friend of mine had a successful hunt. Um, So there's, um, okay, so if you get, if you go over, you go over the counter. You buy your goat tag. You go to region two or somewhere where there's an open goat season. You, is there any regulation that we have to be aware of beyond that? What's the next regulation? As I'm going up the mountain, am I? Walk me through what I what I should be. What the regulations would guide me to for a for a legal and ethical kill. So first and foremost, um,
1: there's a the regulation around nanny harvest. Uh, mountain goats are Tough to tell apart to sex at distance. They look very similar. Um, but there are a bunch of tools online. Certainly, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance uh, has, has tools available online to help people identify a billy versus a nanny. But in BC, we brought in a regulation uh, focused at protecting nannies. So it is illegal to harvest a nanny that's accompanied by a kid or that's in a group that contains kids. And that's the, you know, in terms of importance, that's one of the most important things for hunters and new hunters to recognize. If you see a group of goats and there's kids there, then nannies are off limits. You're not allowed to do that. Um, That's the number one. The second would be if you successfully harvest an animal that you're fully, you're bringing out your meat. Uh, meat utilization is certainly one of the things that the conservation officers are looking for when you're coming down a mountain that your pack is full. Uh, and then the compulsory inspection requirements. So those tend to be the big three things that people should be considering um, and that can get you into trouble. So make sure you know what your compulsory inspection uh, requirements are in terms of provision of proof of sex. Um, what you have to bring to the inspector, the timing of, so you have 30 days from the date of kill um, to bring that in. So, yeah, just be in compliance with that, but also know that when you're out in the field, um, watch for those nanny kid groups or nannies accompanied by kids.
0: So, what are the things that you'd be looking for to tell the difference between a Billy and a nanny? Um
1: so in our synopsis, we've put a little insert in there if you flip through the I forget what page it's on now, but it does give you a sort of a checklist of what to look at. There's a couple diagrams in there. Basically, the horn structure on Billy's is different than it is on nannies. Nannies have quite a slender uh, horn formation ninety nine percent of the time. so you know one of the one of the visual cues when looking from the front at the front of an animal is, you know, can you put another horn, if you take a look at the, the the diameter of each one of the horn bases, could you stick another one in the middle? Is the spacing between those two horns wide enough to hold that same diameter distance horn stuck in the middle? That can be a good idea, identification feature. Billies in the fall specifically, when, when we would be looking to hunt them, um, they have glands at the base of the horns. Nannies have glands as well. But in the fall, Billy's glands become quite swollen. And, and they use that to for marking territory, all that sort of stuff. So um, when you look at the base of a Billy's horns, it's often really difficult to fit another horn in between those two horns. So from the front, that's a good way for people to look. Um, and kind of a test to to get to whether it's a billy or a nanny. From the side, uh, horn curvature is kind of our key identification our identification feature. So nannies tend to have a straighter trajectory of of horn coming off of the skull, and then a slight curve at the end. Um, they're a little bit more like a stiletto heel with a curl at the end, right? Uh, Billys are more uniform curve. They curve right from the base of the skull where they where they come off at of the skull right through to the horn tip it's usually a pretty gentle and even curve the challenge with younger animals with shorter horns um is is obvious because you know that that curve isn't as obvious on a billy and from a nanny's perspective if it's a short horn that's that curve at the end of the horn can almost be deceiving and make you think that it oh well, that that animal's got quite a curve, but it's not actually a curve. It's just the, the tip curve, right? And then the other thing, billies are rutting in the oh, fall. Yeah. They've got dirty butts because they're wallowing in rut pits and that sort of stuff. So, you know, you take a look at how clean an individual is and, and where they're dirty. That can be a, a helpful cue as well. But
0: Yeah. When do they start running? The, when does the, the activity period start? Related to their rut, you know,
1: rut typically is sort of mid-November, and you know our seasons predominantly end before the rut starts. There's some areas in the province that are pretty remote um, that create uh, late-season opportunities or LEH areas that create some later-season opportunities right through to the spring through to February. um But for the most part, uh, hunting seasons are wrapped up before the rut starts, and yeah, it's predominantly that. That mid-November
0: timing. Oh, and of course, they don't have like goat washes on the mountain, so they might be carrying their filth from November through till the mountain hunting season well, next year. I suppose.
1: You know, it's kind of like us when we get ready for a, for a date or a night out on the town. We take a shower. We you know you put on your cologne and you get <laughs> all you get so you smell nice. Well, you know those billies are working on that aroma from August on. So. Um, because they want it to be well seasoned. They want to, those nannies to be able to know that they're in town from a long ways away. Yeah. So um, they do they do get dirty pretty early in the season, um, and a lot of that's related to them just wanting to smell really good for the nannies that are on the
0: mountain. Well, that's great. That's great. So we talked about a couple of things. So that that the one of the things I always think about when I'm you know trying to assess uh, the whether an animal is legal. It's always a combination of things. It's never like one thing for sure. It's like you get the bases. Okay, we got the, the narrow gap in the bases. They're heavy bases. We see the curve. And the other thing I, I look for is when they when they pee, they 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 have different the, the females will squat and the males will kind of stretch out. Or, and is that a, is that a re- reliable way of of including that in your decision? It making? is.
1: It is. I mean, but they don't always pee on cue, so it's it can be a little bit. You can be waiting for quite a while. Um, but still, yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely an ID feature. And, um, you know, if you look at Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance's, uh, online information, they certainly reference that posture. Uh, I have watched goats for a long time and I have still have yet to actually see one pee in front of me while I'm looking at it. So it, it, sometimes it works out. Um, it, it's a great ID feature if it, if you see that, but, you know, again, you might be waiting a long time for that to happen. So,
0: well, I remember. So, uh, we're, the hunting partners and I, we were watching two goats, and one was definitely a nanny, and the other was was a goat. Was that was it was what we thought was a billy goat? We we're like, that, that's that's a billy, and we, we like, yeah, the horns look right, the base and the outliers, But we watched it for a long time, and eventually, it it peed, and then as it turned away from us, we could see its giant testicles hanging down. Yeah. And we're like, ah, okay, that <laughs> that is unmistakable. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, okay, okay, we're, yes, that is a shooter. Go for it. <laughs> <The> irrefutable <laughs> ID <laughs> feature. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. That's another one. So combining all those things, yeah. um, you can get a pretty good ID. The other one, of course, is just you know, it's actually quite rare. I think. I mean, at least in my experience, seeing seeing like nannies and billys don't typically hang out with a bunch of nannies unless um, it's the, the right time. So. Hopefully, find them out there solo as another yeah. contributor. Yeah, to
1: that. I mean, if you can see them um, on
0: a larger mountain complex,
1: but they'll be off on their own. They t- they tend not to be immersed in the group of nannies and kids in that large Like you know, the Billy will be more solitary. Maybe himself and a buddy will be up at the highest point or the most rugged, gnarly piece of ground, mm-hmm. and they'll kind of survey their land from there. So
0: it's it's not that they're mm-hmm. never. But there's no reason why there, it- but. Yeah, but there's also no reason to think that a, n- a nanny goat won't just be off wandering off by herself for exactly. whatever reason, and to not take that as an assumption that it's a, a billion and good to go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, I, I you know that's a pro. It's a long process for me. The one benefit, of course, with hunting goats is that you typically are, are seeing them from a long way away, and you have that the afford of the time to to watch them. Exactly. And you know that's another thing about. There's two things I want to ask you before I let you go. One is about shooting old goats and and why. There's a lot of talk about that, and the other one is is, is making decision making about recovery. Uh, I know that when we've looked at goats and and on hunts I've been on, and say we we end up waiting a long time for the goat to move somewhere that uh, that was re- we could recover it. Um, and I'm wondering, do we do we see do we hear about or do you hear about stories of where you know goats were just weren't recovered because of where they ended up after falling off a mountain? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is that a common story that we see reported. It
1: happens every year. Some people self report, other people um, get reported. So, one thing about having a thousand more mountain goat hunters out on those mountains now in BC is that uh, oftentimes somebody's successful uh, hunt will be seen by someone else. So, um, it's in, it, things go wrong. Like, we understand. That right. So self reporting to COS is always a good outcome. Um, if, if in the event that happens for the most part, people are able to recover their goats. Um, the ones that don't are, are people that didn't turn their mind to that initially. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's one of the first things people should be looking at. Yeah, there's a goat. Oh, I've got a shot. Well can you recover the animal if you shoot it where it is? So, you know, your description of taking the time to watch those animals and make sure that they're in a spot where you're going to be able to recover them, that's a critical um, decision and a critical approach to take. Nobody wants to to shoot an animal and, and have it sort of left in the bush, I don't think. So mistakes happen, but, you know, people follow the advice you just gave about making sure they're going to be able to recover. I think that's that's a good thing. Sometimes they, they do tumble and they get recovered, but they're just not in very good shape. Um, and so yeah, it's kind of two scales of that. Can I recover that animal? Um, really it's, can you recover that animal in the condition that you're going to want to be able to, to eat it and make the most use of it,
0: right? So. I mean, yeah, and yeah, and I think everybody wants I mean I, I for one want to have a goat hide in our home. Um and I you know, I, I would love to have horns in our house just to look at and learn from and, and so I, I would like to be able to utilize the whole animal. Um, obviously and then eating it would be, you know, pre tenderized sounds okay to me, but um
1: <laughs> Well and there you uh, go. But yeah, so a, it, you just like people say, Oh, trophy hunters, you know, goats and sheep, you're just trophy hunters. But if you think about it, the hunter, the guy who, the person, not guy, because we are seeing quite an upswing in, in, um, lady mountain hunters, which is awesome. Um, but the hunter is, they're taking the meat and they're always taking the horns and they're probably also at least taking a cape, if not the entire hide. So, you know, how, how many deer or moose hunters take all that stuff with them well not as much so yeah it it might be called trophy hunting some people might consider that a nasty term but in terms of utilization mountain ungulate hunters tend to utilize a pretty high proportion of the wildlife that they harvest so that's a good thing
0: it's one of the one of my my friends who's challenging me on i was i'm a reluctant bear hunter as i was mentioning and he was challenging me on bear hunting he's like well you know you you use more of the bear than you would ever have a whitetail. Like you, you, you use the hide, you use the, you hang on to the claws and make jewelry. You render the fat, you boil the bones. You like the whole thing is used. Of course, then the meat is, 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 is wonderful. So it's like, yeah, you know, like he, if you're thinking, if you're, if you're motivated by food and, mm-hmm. and using the animal and respect to the animal, like you kind of, you know, yeah, there's, there's lots of reasons. A bear, a bear hunt will check a lot of boxes. And I think it's similar with a goat hunter, caribou hunt and, and, uh, all, it's just a beautiful animals. and you want to, yeah, I, I can't, I mean, I'd love to have a goat hide in the house for sure. Um, so there's one thing I, I hear about a lot and I, and I don't quite understand this. So I'm really looking, I'm excited to ask this question. Like why within the goat hunting community, that, that, the mountain hunting community, there's a lot of, you know, discussion around harvesting older billies and that's better for the population. Is, is that hold true from a biologist's perspective and, and, and maybe break that down for me. So, yeah, I, uh... What we see
1: is the similar to, to thin horn sheep, um, is the, the main reproductive part of the Billy group is sort of that eight to 10 year old group. Um, they are, they're at that perfect point in their life where they have really good physical fitness still. They still have youth. Um, and they're still able to, to, they've not been beat up too, too much. When they start to get older, 12 years or older, like I said, they become less active in the rut, they become senescent. Um, so if your harvest is in that group of animals, uh, they are, as as we kind of touched on earlier, kind of the knowledge holders in the population, but they've shared that knowledge throughout the year with all the other individuals in their group and that they've had interaction with. So. In terms of population effect, those older billies, harvesting them will have the least amount of effect on both sort of the reproduction engine, but also kind of the 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 main sort of um, social uh, hierarchy in the group as well.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that that made, I I I actually impress how old they are. I mean, I don't in the sheep population. I you know I know that. I mean, I, I've done 10 years of sheep hunting and, and I think I've, I probably shot the oldest ram that I saw in 10 years. And so I don't know, like for my, unless I'm not looking in the right spots, but how, what's, what, when, when does, a, uh, uh, I, I didn't get the word right. When does a sheep reach senescence? Is that is the that, is that Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah. So, it's, um, a little bit later for sure. Um, then, then sort of that, um, Seven year old timeline, which is so I, I guess you know, not to confuse things, but big horns versus thin horns. So, big horns they, they tend to start rutting a little bit earlier in life, thin horns a little bit later, kind of similar to mountain goats. They're in that sort of seven to nine year old timeline where the main part of their activity in the rut happens. Um, I've seen sheep harvested that are 16, 17 years old that. Uh, um, and they're very unlikely that they're involved in actively in the rut at that point. But what we do see in some of those older rams um, is a single u will favor them. They will develop these long-term um, annual relationships where they'll have one or two u's that they will service in a year. But after twelve. They tend to be a lot less
0: active
1: in
0: the rut. Hmm. Okay. Cool, That's exciting. Um, well, I think we've got enough. To, oh, yeah, okay. So we, we've covered off kind of the main points of the of the discussion that I wanted to capture for the new hunter. But, but one one last question on this, and I got a few questions. I'm going to make you suffer through to, to support our sponsors, and they're kind of fun. So we'll we'll have a bit of fun with that. But what? But Bill, what's your favorite part of of, of studying and manage, managing? Goats in the northwest part of BC. Mm. Golly, um, it, they're just amazing.
1: I, I, you know, sheep are incredible too, but for different reasons. Where goats live, are are, yeah, they're just, they're just individual in that way. I watched the mountain goat one time go out on a ledge on a sheer face, and. You know, I'm watching it from distance through a spotting scope, and I'm assuming the ledge is maybe 12 inches wide, and this Billy, he's walking out onto this sheer face. It's 100 feet below him sort of thing if he slips and falls, and I'm marveling at that and following him along, and all of a sudden, the ledge ends, and there's nothing but a 300-foot drop in front of him. There's no cliff opportunity above him and i thought that's a dead goat like what are you going to do now and he kind he brought his four hooves together and he handstanded and walked his hind around the cliff oh
0: my god yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and
1: walked back out and when you can do that above a 300 foot drop <laughs> you deserve some respect so after that, it was like, wow,
0: yeah, coach is pretty cool. Right on. Like, I'm to try doing like highlights of the podcast for folks. Like, I'll put that on YouTube. You just sure. nailed it there. Thanks. That's, that, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Okay, I got a few questions before I let you go. Now we got we got a team of sponsors that have, are helping keeping this podcast going, and the first one is our friends at Seek Outside, and I don't know if you're familiar with their stuff, but they they make those TP tents oh, yeah, that are yeah. super light. You put a wind stove in them, and and so it's it's a game changer for late season hunting. Uh, Ultra light, you can backpack a kid in and, and have a relatively warm and comfortable sleep in the wind when you're winter hunting. So I call this the the Seek Outside Game Changer Gear Question. Tell me about a piece of equipment. That has helped you, you know, be more efficient, safer, or more successful on your journey as a hunter. Um, game changer gear that you rely on.
1: Well, now at fifty-six years old, hiking poles. <laughs> Good one. Oh yeah, like you know, back in the day, it was like when I was younger. It might have been a stove, or it might have been. I mean, you know, those mountain house meals were pretty terrible. You know, twenty years ago. They're great now. I mean, what a difference. But now that I'm older, golly, the hiking poles and my knees, I gotta have them.
0: Absolutely. I discovered that far too late in my <laughs> hunting journey and I'm so glad that I discovered them then because, yeah, there's just, like so many times I'll be like, I'll I'll just about spill and I'll be like, oh, catch myself with the ski pole. I'm like, oh, thank God. That could have been devastating. Yeah. It, could, it could have been the end of the trip, right? So, well, perfect segue to our next question, which is brought to you from west coast kitchen canada they do uh whole food in a in a in a bag they've they they dehydrated or or uh uh gourmet meals for your adventures ultra lightweight backpack food and it's good stuff and uh, i've been been taking it with me on adventures for a while now and i really appreciate it so can you tell me about your most memorable meal while in the backcountry on a hunt somewhere in the mountains not, not specifically, I'm not asking about your favorite uh, dehydrated food no. mix. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, you're, just your favorite meal in the backcountry after on a hunt. So
1: I, I was out on a hunt with a friend and um, he had brought some dehydrated ice cream. He didn't tell me, right? And we're out, uh oh, it's like day four or something like that. And you've had your jerky and you've had your trail mix and you've had your, you know, your plethora of dehydrated meals and we're back at camp one night and he breaks out this dehydrated ice cream and you break it off and it's like wow that like at day four that was incredible i know people that take in you know blocks of cheese and chocolate bars but for me that 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 ice cream was something so a few years after that i took my son's hunting two of them we hiked up a a mountain to go sheep and goat hunting um and on day three i pulled out dehydrated ice cream and they had the same reaction that i had when my buddy had pulled it out it was pretty incredible
0: cool cool i'll have to look for that that's a hot tip and uh okay so our next question is from our we have a beer sponsor for a lot they fund they they give us donations for the fundraisers and stuff that we do and it's beer beer b-e-e-r-e beer and they're in north vancouver they're a microbrewery place and they make really nice bright uh pilsners and lagers that uh, are great after a successful hunt um, but this question's about tell me about something else that you forage or catch or harvest uh that may or may not go well with beer that but you get excited about throughout the seasons of eating wild mm-hmm. Probably in the north,
1: we're fortunate we still have a pretty good um, run of sockeye. So, um, you know, having a barbecued sockeye fillet with some cream cheese on it um, on a cedar plank Mm. and then a nice lager with a slice of orange in it. Oh, man. There
0: you go. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, I'll uh, have to send you some beer. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect. Cool. Okay, our last, our last question for you, Bill. I really appreciate your time. But there, so the uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers are the official sponsor of the Wild Podcast, and of course, they do good work, kind of, kind of cultivating a younger generation of conservationists and hunters to come together and contribute to conservation here in BC. Um, and so, this question is from them, and it's uh, tell me about your dream hunt in BC. Uh, where would you want to go? How would you want to access the hunt? How would you want to? How would you want to hunt? So, if there's still a dream hunt left for you that you haven't already done, what would you Uh, do?
1: Well, you know, I now in the position that I'm in now, I I get to see every CI form that comes in for goats and sheep, and so I've kind of drawn a line in my in sand for myself. It's um, even though I may not actively think oh i can like you know what i mean when you when you see all those dots on the map it's not fair for me to use that information i don't think so now when i go hunting i go with friends they decide where we're going they don't have the benefit of the information that i have that's how i pass the red face test um because i'm very diligent making sure that i never can be portrayed to sort of have an insider advantage um that's led to some really great alpine hiking adventures um (laughs) but you know what it's a (laughs) phenomenal place to be right sunrise on a mountaintop there is no better place to be so um i never have a problem with that my dream hunt would be probably a stone sheep hunt i'm still a less than one club member or sheep um, by choice more so than by circumstance. Uh, you know, the situations I had, I either had didn't have a that aftershot issue. Can you recover? Will it be in a condition you want to recover it in? Um, another one, young Ram, legal, but you know, seven-year-old just above the bridge in the nose, that's not something for me that I wanted to um, do. So Stone sheep hunt somewhere where I'm guilt free.
0: That would be <laughs> that would be my dream. Maybe I wonder if like the government, that like the Yukon government and the BC government could like. Take do to an exchange I exactly. be like, Hey, these guys, you know, they, 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 there's gotta be a specialist there. You, you, yeah. They can come down and hunt BC. You can go up North. And it's like, it's be, I think it'd be a fair thing. I think, I, I think everybody would be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's one way around this, right? Maybe so, That might be, yeah. <laughs> continue to do the good work you do. And uh, yeah, for sure. Well, it's such a conundrum. It's an interesting conundrum. And I know that I've had conversations with, with Conrad about, um, you know, Maybe doing a hunt together, and he approaches it very similar. Not in the mountain species we just talked about, you know, moose hunting and stuff. And and yeah, interesting enough, like just say it's a it's a complexity that wildlife biologists have to deal with, and they prefer to typically hunt, you know, maybe outside their their region of study, so they just don't feel like they're have using privileged information. Yeah. yeah, been exposed to that conversation before, which is which it makes a lot of sense to me. So I think it's important. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's important, and I mean, you're a professional, and and ultimately, it's yeah you want to feel good about your hunt and, and uh, you want to be able to talk about it too. You don't want to have people like, you know, exactly. "Hmm." Yeah, no doubt. So Bill, it's really great to see you and uh, you look really happy Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's great, great to see you so happy and doing so well. And I have seen so much of your stuff lately. You've been really active in the hunting community, sharing your information, helping people better understand uh, annuli and how sheep aging works. And I really appreciate the good work you're, you're, you're doing both for the wildlife, but also for hunter education uh, it's been, it's been awesome. I'm glad you're able to do that for the community. And um, yeah, if people want to send you a note or uh, get in touch with you, what's the best way to, 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 to reach out to you? Or, or is there a mechanism to do that? Or do you just get like, ber- like uh, berated with cheap <laughs> questions as a provincial <laughs> biologist and you'd rather just say, <laughs> just not, not, not go down that You know, hallway. it's all it's good. It,
1: I mean, the inbox gets full emails probably the best way. And with government, it's dead simple. It's person's first name, a period, and their last name, and then at gov.bc.ca, right? So really simple sort of email structure for the province. Um, but some of the best interactions that I've had is at, you know, those outdoor shows. So Wild Sheep Societies, conventions, um, down in uh, different venues in the US with Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, or with Um, with other groups, um, hunting shows, that sort of thing, where I'm, I I mean, I'm able to attend some of those for work because I usually do a workshop or something like that there. I attend other ones, just personal interest. Um, sometimes people flag me down on the street, but those are the really quality experiences. Um, cause it's like our chat with you today. You get to chuckle a bit and it's not too dry and, and you never know where, you know, one sentence takes you in terms of the next, right? So that that's a lot of fun. So people see me in person for sure. That's that's a an enjoyable experience for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it's been a pleasure. I actually I love about this podcast. I mean, this is like I, I get to basically hang out with all the provincial biologists, which I, I mean, I I get to kind of come dream up who I want to talk to and then just invite them on. And and you know, people seem open to chatting about what they're passionate about and. Um and it's just cool to like, you know, just be able to set aside an hour and talk about something you love doing and talking about. And uh, I'm really appreciated this podcast for that. So I, I love taking your time and, and talking to you. I'd love to have you back on and talk to the sheep. Yeah. I mean, that would be a dream and and uh, if we can get the support to do that from our employer, that'd be great. And I think we're we'll probably do. So let's make that happen. Um, last question. I just ordered a book today. Um, my wife was talking about the book the beast, a color of winter.
1: Chadwick's book, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So is it relevant uh, to to sheep uh, goat conservation these days? It it is. It is. And, um, you know, he's done a couple
1: others about Wolverine and um, uh, sort of a round two of that. That's a great book in terms of um, sort of baseline reading, the checklist of the books you need to read for mountain goats. That's definitely, if not the first, the second one on the list in terms of hunters. Um Steve Cote and Marco bianchette did uh another book about mountain goats from the Car Ridge study area. It's a compendium of their multiple years of research. That's sort of a number two Chadwick's book is I mean, he's such a great writer. Um he's a storyteller
0: too. So it's it's not dry. It's you'll enjoy that. Cool. That's what well Mickey was saying, she was just really moved by the writing in the book yeah. and and She wanted me to ask you if it was, you know, she was moved by the storytelling, but she wasn't sure if she was, if it was representative biology of the goat. So she was curious to, like, to ask that. So I'm excited to read it. And, uh, and and what was the name of the other book that you mentioned, number number two? Uh, it's, um, oh, shoot. Um,
1: Steve Cote and Marco Fesce wrote it. Um, and
0: I... The, you got me all nervous i'll be able now, to dig it up for later there, and I'll, I'll, I'll include it in the sh- i'll include it in the show notes okay. i'll dig it up and, and include it in the show notes but again, again bill don't go anywhere i'm going to send you a package of stuff for coming on the podcast including a package of the west coast kitchen, kitchen dehydrated food oh, for geesh. your next mountain meal and some other good stuff but just just hang on here and we'll just say goodbye offline but anyways i'll, I'll say bye to the audience now and thanks again bill thank you Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question, either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at And we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast, or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild, Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, Burst, Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment Wherever you listen to your podcast, that'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and well.